Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. You ever have one of those days you don't look forward to? For me, that day is Tuesday. Every Tuesday. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And on this week's episode, yeah, we're going to break the rules. We've got a bit of a special episode. Now, we will have a music mailbag and rant, but the entire episode will be dedicated to the memory of pipe maker Smio Sato, who we uh, lost on July 16th and... Uh, Sykes, Wilford, and I sat down and recorded what you're about to hear. Just basically us two guys talking about the memories of Sato. And, you know, Sykes obviously knew him a lot better than I did. But uh, for me personally, you know, uh, Sato is the uh, pipe maker that I have the most pipes from. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get a, you know, there's not going to be any new pipes from Sato. So. Uh, it was uh, it was kind of hard hitting and uh, you know set me back a little bit. Uh, let's, let's just put it that way. Um, and so what you're about to hear is kind of cathartic and sometimes you know somewhat uh, yeah just just uh, more memorializing. Uh, don't forget uh, coming up in uh, ten days. Yeah, ten days. I'll be in Columbus, Ohio for the NASPC pipe show. I'll be. Uh, I'll be there representing the Las Vegas International Pipe Show, so please come by. We'll have a little table and uh, come by and visit us. Say hi. Uh, Dave's going to be there, too. Uh, we'll have some of our hats for sale right there at the show. Uh, but just come by, say hi. Uh, if you see me sitting out in the smoking tent area, stop by, say hi. Uh, Las Vegas International Pipe Show stuff. So the uh, the early registration discount ends september 10th so go online make sure you've booked your tables and your uh and your tickets for the show before september 10th for those of you attending the show if you book your ticket before september 10th not only do you save five dollars but you also get five free raffle tickets into our raffle and i know there are some great pipes coming for that uh so you'll get to see that and you'll want to make sure and be there on friday when uh when we have our uh, collector showcase and smoking lounge open friday night at 5 p.m so information's all at vegaspipeshow.com you can go there and book everything any questions email us all right let's get the show rolling so everybody sit back relax fire up a bowl thank you all for tuning in and here we go There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Hi, I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal. We know pipe smoking is a personal journey. That's why our small team of blending and production experts take a personal approach in every step preparing tobacco products just for you. We source top quality leaf through the personal connections we've made around the world, hand blend that leaf, and carefully package each tin. Each product, from special releases like our small batch line to our most popular mixtures like Autumn Evening, are made right here in South Carolina by professionals dedicated to providing the finest of smoking experiences. Lighting up a pipe is an exploration through evolving flavors, thoughts, memories, and even dreams. From our hands to yours, Cornell and Deal tobaccos are your passport for that voyage, provided by people who, like you, value the journey. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining me is uh, the founder, creator, Grand Poobah, master of pipes, doctor of pipes, the only one to hold both titles. And uh, thank, thanks, thank you for you being the youngest doctor of pipes now, Sykes. But um, Sykes Wilford, LaDC, smokingpipes.com. 
Um, I would like to say welcome to the show, but the subject matter is not one that we really wanted to ever have happen or have to discuss, is it? No, unfortunately not. Thank you for having me on, though, Brian. Yeah. So, so let me. I'll I'll breach the subject in that saying that um, I found out as this goes out about a week, week and a half ago, that uh, Smeo Sato, the uh, pipe maker, had passed away in at his home in Tokyo, and I'll let you take it over from there. Um, so, do you know any more details other than that he was? Sure. I mean, not, not, not a lot. I mean, he had been in poor health for uh, a few years, um, uh, since maybe late 2019. Um, he he was 79 and he passed away in the, in the middle of July. Um, and, uh, he had continued to make pipes, uh, following his, his initial bout of illness a few years ago. Um, and, uh, but, but it had become, he didn't have the energy to sustain uh, the pace that he that he had been making pipes, so they became less and less frequent in the, in the last few years. Um, so it was about a four about a four year illness. But he was seventy nine when he when he passed. And when did you meet Sato first? I met Sato in two thousand and two, June two thousand and two, uh, in Tokyo, uh, on my first ever trip. To Japan, um, so I had started smoking pipes. I'm going to give a little bit of backstory on yeah. how I ended up in Tokyo in, in 2002. Before I talk about Sato, I started smoking pipes in mid late uh, 2000, um, and you know, buying pipes from distributors and selling them online and stuff like that. And then I got to be friends with a diplomat, a Saudi diplomat, uh, who worked at the Saudi embassy in Tokyo. And this was the same year, 2002, for our soccer fans, uh, was the year the World Cup was in Japan and South Korea. And he convinced us, uh, me and my college roommate at the time who was helping out with the business, Carlos, uh, he convinced us that we should come to Japan to uh, meet Japanese pipe makers and go to the World Cup. Now, the, in, the order of importance of these things in our heads might have been the other way around, uh, but... <laughs> But, uh, but we found ourselves in Tokyo trying to track down pipe makers um, in, in, in June uh, 2002. So we met, as part of this process, we met uh, uh, Barney Suzuki, um, who at the time was the president of the Pipe Club of Japan um, and a very important figure in sort of the academic side of the pipe community. Um, he's written a number of of books and articles since then on the history of propagation of, of smoking and specifically pipe smoking um, in East Asia. And so how it came to East Asia from, from Europe by way of the Portuguese and the Dutch um, and uh, how it came to Japan, but also how it came to the rest of uh, the rest of East Asia. So he was important in the pipe community then he's still significant more on the academic side now. Um, and he connected me with, uh, Smeo Sato for the first time. Oh. So, so what was what were your first thoughts when you met him? I mean, do you have any recollections of seeing his pipes and thinking that these are you know, what your first thoughts were on him? It was it, it was sort of an amazing experience. So I didn't know some of the other pipe makers that I met on that first trip. I had some sense of their pipes. I'd at least seen pictures. In Sato's case, I had no expectations because I had seen nothing until until we met. We were sitting in uh, Mr. Suzuki's office, um, and he pulled out these pipes carefully, unwrapping one uh, after another, um, and very you know, very deliberate manner. You knew him well too, like very very meticulous, um, and. They were beautiful, and the finish was unlike anything else I'd ever seen. Um, and and at the very beginning, of course, I didn't know why when he was pulling them out. Um, and the the shaping was was distinct. 
Um, it was neither, it was none of the three major schools nor an obvious derivation thereof. So it wasn't like Tokotomi's obvious derivation of, I mean, brilliant also, but, but, but it was clearly derived from, from Danish, uh, design in the seventies, sixties, seventies and eighties. Um, uh, nor was it, nor were they classically English. Um, so they were, they were beautiful. They were well-proportioned. They were, were elegant, but they were not... Uh, easily pigeonholed in any major stylistic uh, stylistic group, um, which made them immediately interesting. Yeah. Um, for them to both be good and not be able to tell exactly where his 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 uh, you know artistic ad- antecedents lay, um, that was pretty pretty amazing. And, um, and at that point, the man is, did you get you got to meet him and and get to know a little bit about him? A little bit then. I mean, I feel like I got to know Sato little by little across a very long period of time. I mean, he and I knew each other for, for more than 20 years. Um, but at the beginning, uh, it was, and, and some of this was was not really even explained to me until later. I didn't get the, the, the biography. Uh, it sort of came in bits and pieces over time. But um, he was new. He wasn't new to pipe making, but he was new to being an independent pipe maker with his own brand. So he had worked as a pipe repairman for Suge. He had worked as a machine, um, basically a, a toll and die maker maybe for, for Suge, but basically the guy that would be responsible for maintaining the machinery that they made pipes with, um, making tools for them, uh, solving technical problems. So, so like adjacent, in many ways adjacent to pipe making and also made pipes, but, but primarily and had been involved in the industry for, for a long time. And his father had been a pipe maker. So while he had this rich history of being involved with pipes, the pipes under his own name was only a couple of years old uh, when I, maybe three years old, uh, when I when I met him in, in 2002. So he was new to, to uh, new as a brand, but not new as a pipe maker. Right. And of course, I was at the very beginning of my career, and he was in his late sixties. I'm sorry, late fifties. Uh, while while I was, you know, still in diapers. <laughs> yeah, I was um, going to say barely old enough to drive, but go ahead. <laughs> I was. I was. Let's see. Was I old? Yes, I was old enough to drink. <laughs> barely. Yeah. I was barely old enough to drink. Yeah. Um, so at that first meeting, did you pick out some pipes for, for smoking pipes? Is that when is we that... took I took everything he brought with us with him to the meeting. Um, as I recall, um, he, he brought maybe six or seven pipes and, and I bought all of them and we talked about, um, you know, we worked out arrangements for how it would work going forwards and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure the, you know, I, Here's my memory of smokingpipes.com in those early days was one, who are these kids? Two, how do I sell them tobacco? And three, why are they f- Japanese pipe makers? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember the one cocktail party that you guys kind of hosted at the Chicago Pipe Show that had a whole bunch of your Japanese pipe makers, and I came and met them, and, and I thought, well, okay, these, these are interesting, but you guys really kind of pioneered that movement into the Western world. Yes. And I would like to take all sorts of credit for the brilliance involved in that, but a lot of it was sort of luck and happenstance and, you know, <laughs> yeah. nice accidents and help from really nice men like, like, uh, like Barney Suzuki. Um, uh, so in many ways, yes, we established Japanese pipes in the global, helped to establish Japanese pipes on the global stage. But also Japanese pipes helped to establish smoking pipes yeah. as a as a place that took took pipes seriously and people looked to for for serious work with pipes. So those early days, um, you know, those days early in, in in my career with with smoking pipes and smoking pipes history, it was very much about Japanese pipes. Yeah. Um, it was what we were doing that no one else was doing. Yeah. So. All right, we're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll have uh, more with Sykes, so stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Internet Radio. For over 150 years, Peterson has welcomed all pipe smokers. 
It's the preferred choice of the thinking man and the everyman alike, and our workshop too is a place of hospitality and warmth. Hi, I'm Glenn Whelan, and for me, Peterson is a family tradition I've known since my childhood. My dad, Tony Whelan Jr., worked at Peterson for 53 years and has been my home since 2003. From sweeping our factory on a Saturday morning, to managing our store, to now steering our international distribution, I've seen the craftsmanship poured into each Peterson pipe. It lives in Jason's discerning eye as he handcrafts our silver accents and in Wojciech's able hands as he carves our rustications. It abides in Willie's grading and in Warren's papering. Peterson has welcomed us as contributors to its legacy. And it's a welcome we always extend to you. Cade Mielefolge, 100,000 welcomes, wherever you come from, whosoever you be. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And uh, all right, Sykes, so so you've bought the pipes and stuff and you've developed a relationship. But I mean, what who was Sato? What were you know, you you had you had way more interactions than I did with him. And I'll I'll tell my story somewhere you know, down the road here. But what are what are some of your favorite Sato stories? Well, Sato and I were. We got to be we got to be friends over over the ensuing years, and this was across uh, some some pretty massive age and cultural uh, um, divides, right? Um, you know, he was um, forty years my senior, uh, and uh, and in some ways he's, it felt like more than that because he was from a pre-war generation in in Japan that was that feels older than it is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we had this huge age gap and then, and then also uh, some, some pretty serious cultural and language barriers uh, between us. Yeah. Um, so we just sort of slowly got to know each other over, over the ensuing years. Um, Sato was also a very private man. Um, and a lot of his biographical details, I didn't even really know. Um, until many, many years later. Um, but he was always, he's an incredibly kind man and an incredibly generous man and always concerned with, you know, what was going on in, in my life or, or celebrating with me. The, I remember when his, his daughter got married and, and the way he shared the stories and the pictures of that, uh, uh, pictures of that with me, um, and so the, you know, when I, one story that occurs to me is that when he found out I was, I was, uh, getting married, um, he insisted on taking me, it was just the two of us. And of course we, we can't really communicate at all. Um, insisted on taking me to a shop that a, a specialized shop, uh, and maker of traditional Japanese dolls. So there, there's this whole sort of subset of doll making in Japan where the dolls follow certain, and I don't know the names of any of these things. This is pipe making. I'd know the rule, you know, know the names if it were pottery. I'd know the names, but doll making, I don't know. Um, he took me to the store with these highly stylized dolls that wore kimonos. And he insisted that it was really important that we pick out a, a doll wearing a kimono. Now think very, very fancy, uh, kimonos just shrunk down to doll size these aren't um you know this isn't these aren't toys for children this is like some sort of old art craft that's been that's been saved by a handful of of craftsmen left in in japan insisted that we do this at for my wife to be now i don't understand i didn't understand then and i still don't understand whether this is a widespread japanese practice uh or an old japanese practice or just something that he thought would be nice and fun so we did this together and we, we picked out this stall and I was very confused the whole time. Um, but it was so, it was so earnest and so kind and, and very special experience for me. And, but I came home with that, uh, with that doll and I gave it to Allison and did my, to Allison, my wife did my best to explain to her what this whole thing was about. And she was also a tiny bit confused. Um, <laughs> um, but that's sort of a, sort of a classic Sato and, and me moment where there was sort of a, at times sort of a striving towards understanding and, and kindness. And, 
fraternal feeling. Um, but there was this sort of vast cultural cultural gulf between us. Um, I don't know if that speaks to some of some of what you're asking, Brian. I, I met him twice. The first time was at that first little party thing that you guys did in 04, 05, whatever it was. I don't know. Um, 06. Uh, and then the second time was uh, 10 years later in uh, 2016. And both times when I met him, I thought of him as, you know, when you think in your head of the quintessential Japanese man who was polite, reserved, and classical but then once you had a conversation with him you quickly became a friend uh, mm -hmm. and he wanted to connect with you on on other levels besides just i make pipes and you buy them from me kind of kind of connection um in fact i i just pulled it up uh for those of you listening it was episode 192 where i had sato thankfully through uh Ryota's translation i recorded an interview with him and had him on the podcast but um when when he would show you uh i i guess when when you you started doing regular frequent trips to japan and then it was always a visit to sato was part of the was part of the trip right at the at the beginning uh, yeah. also a, a bunch of great stories about visiting him in his home um at the beginning, we always met at Barney Suzuki's office. And so this was very Western. Just It was an office. Like Barney Suzuki ran a uh, uh, semiconductor engineering firm. Um, it was a highly technical handful of engineers in the office. And uh, so we met there. And then Sato invited me. I can't remember exactly when. The first time he invited me to come to his home, I was the first non-Japanese person to had ever to have ever been in his home. Mm. Um, this is maybe 2006, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And he lived in a very, so not just a traditional Japanese home, but an older traditional Japanese home. So in Tokyo, partly because of World War II and partly because of natural disasters and partly because of an approach to uh, the life cycle of residential buildings, uh, in Japan, there's not a lot of old architecture. And his home was built in 1930s. So it, it was sort of like walking back in in time wow. to a Japan of which there are very few examples. You know, even in the United States, like there's an awful lot of residential property that is 70, 80, 100, 150, whatever years old. In Japan, that's un, that's unusual for, for a host of, for those, for those various reasons. So walking, so having this opportunity to visit him in his home, you walk into his home, and uh, there's a very small little area to put shoes and such because you don't wear those into the home. Uh, behind, and then that little area is separated uh, from from the rest of the living area by uh, shoji um, panels. So, so think paper walls, classic Man. Japanese wow. that you picture from you know shogun movies and stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, you move your shoes. Uh, put on slippers. Um, I never was able to put on slippers because my feet were always too big for provided slippers no matter where I would go in Japan. Um, <laughs> I could either wear the slippers and have my heels hang off the end or just forego the slippers and just go in sock feet. So usually I just opted for sock feet. And and you walk in and his main sort of living room and dining room area, there were no chairs except at the computer in the corner. Um, so as they dined on a low table in classic Japanese uh, uh, manner. Um, so it was on to tatami mats and then a low table, and you would you would sit kneeling um, at the table. And um, we would sit there and visit for a while and, and talk. At first, this was all this discussion happened uh, through through Barney Suzuki. Later on, um, this a lot of this happened through Ryoto Shimizu, who works for Smoking Pipes in Japan. And um, and has been on your radio show a, a couple of times, I think. Yeah. And uh, then often would go to his workshop, which was extremely. It was both small and very well equipped. So this this home was tiny, also. Like this is this yeah. traditional Japanese home from the 30s. Tokyo was a very very dense city, even even then, and and 
homes were, were small. So in his very small home, he had a very small workshop, but an incredibly well-appointed, well-equipped, well-organized workshop. And he, he just used the space incredibly efficiently. You know, by American standards, this all felt um, felt small, but as Americans, we use we use space with with such abandon, um, <laughs> and and sort of uh, <laughs> you know whole rooms are houses that we rarely go into. Yeah. Um, uh, and and for him, it was you know the spaces at such a premium. So this 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 small space had extremely good, extremely well maintained, extremely well organized equipment and materials. Um, and so different, you know, we'd do different things, uh, together. Like a couple of times he showed me different kinds of, of Arushi applications. So backing up a moment, um, Sato, in addition to being a pipe maker, uh, was also accomplished as a, uh, Japanese lacquerware, uh, well, he never really made Japanese lacquerware because he only ever really did it with pipes, but he could... Take Arushi, which is um, a natural resin sap, and is used to make Japanese lacquerware. Give give wood usually uh, um, a a waterproof coating, and you can do lots of things with this. You can sprinkle gold dust in it, and so and then you know the traditional suge or uh, this traditional Dunhill Namiki pipes um, would are, are one particular sub branch of this. Um, but but for everyday um use you could just apply a clear lacquer to uh wooden objects and then use them the way we would use um well they would also you know they also had a had a pottery industry but sort of as a replacement for pottery in some in some instances um so Sato would apply uh arushi to pipes he's really the only person uh that that ever did that his father did a little bit um, so his father showed him both the beginnings of pipe making and the beginnings of uh, Arushi work. Um, but his father died when when Sato was was about 20, 20 or 22. Um, no one else has really done that. So so one time he would show me how he applied Arushi. Another time we, we spent a lot of time talking about um, uh, his his approach to drilling and, and shaping and some sort of basic pipe making mechanics and things like that. Then... And then after that, his, his wife would prepare uh, lunch for us, and we would sit on the floor uh, on, uh, at this low table and, and eat together. They would all be kneeling. My knees don't work that way. Um, so I would kneel for about 45 seconds or a minute, and then I would go cross-legged to work well uh, while sitting on the floor for a couple hours as we all just spent time talking and, uh, and eating together. We're going to take another break right here. When we come back, we'll have more, uh, more stories and reminiscence, and I'll, uh, I'll tell my, uh, my brave little tale again of taking five people from Tokyo to a sushi restaurant in St. Charles, Illinois. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Take a look at your pipe rack. Are all those briars and mirrors constant companions in your rotation? Or are there some that you gravitate to more than others? Are there some that you simply don't smoke anymore? Through SmokingPipes.com's estate trade program, you can transform those underused pipes into immediate cash or store credit. Just send us your pipes and we'll unpack, inspect, and evaluate them based on extensive market research and over 20 years of experience. Then we'll contact you with a detailed offer for your choice of cash or store credit Valid on any items in our vast selection of pipes, tobacco, cigars, and accessories. If you're not happy with our quote, we'll return your pipes free of charge to domestic addresses. It's that simple. Join the thousands of Smoking Pipes customers who have benefited from this program and start your trade today by contacting us at 888-366-0345. That's 888-366-0345. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and yes, I've broken the rules, but this is a, I mean, the, you know, Sykes, for you, this is a, this is a long-term relationship and, and somebody who became a friend and a mentor and somebody who, I mean, you sat in his house and ate and, you know, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I appreciate it. Um, I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell my one story real quick. 
about and uh, and you can feel free to laugh at me because you will uh, but when I came to work at Smoking Pipes, I believe all of my pipes were six-inch long Levats or Canadians, and they were all straight and sandblasted or smooth, and that was about it. And I didn't have any real, yeah, I didn't have any bent pipes at all, basically. Um, and then for uh, for Christmas, my first Christmas there, I bought myself a uh, Sato pipe. And it's definitely not a straight Levat or sandblast. It's smooth and it's a little bent brandy. And uh, that kind of set me off on my path of, you know, all right, this, I, you know, I appreciate the work in it. And then the, uh, the Arushi lacquer makes it uh, just easy to keep clean. Um, and then the little Suishu inlays that he does, which I, if I recall correctly from my visit with him, uh, those pieces of Suishu were left over from his father, uh, who made those pieces. Yes. So Suishu is made by layering many, many, many fine layers of colored Arushi lacquer and letting it dry. So then you cut it, you cut it against the grain. And you get this sort of rainbow effect of these different different colors. He started using this, I don't want to say later in his I mean, I guess later in his career. It was it was ten years or so after after he and I started working together, eight or ten years. Um, but it became this really celebrated and prized thing uh, in his pipes. Yeah. Um, these these old pieces of Suishu. Particularly by you, Brian. You particularly prized them and celebrated them. Yes. Um well, I mean, what I, I guess what I, I really what I really celebrated about him is that it's a piece of his father's work put into a piece of his work, which shows the the generations carrying on and and you know respect to the past with looking towards the future kind of thing, um, and they're just beautiful. As I sit here and stare at one, uh, oh, it's, it's stunning! It's stunning. Yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, Sato coming to the U.S. stories? Um, so the first, the first time he came to the U S so most of my interactions with him were, were, were in Japan. I was there every year, sometimes twice a year from, from 2002 until, well, until the beginning of 2020 with the, with the start of the pandemic. And I haven't been, I'll go back next year. And, but, but he did come to the U S maybe four times, I think all to Chicago. Um, so 2004, 2005, 2006, maybe 2007, I can't remember. And then again, many years later in 2016, uh, when you spent a lot of time with him. And, uh, that was the first time we brought them, like realized, of course, I was really young. Like I was, I was 20, 23 years old. Um, and I didn't know what to do with these guys. I didn't know what was appropriate, but I thought, okay, well, these guys are coming all the way from Japan. Uh, I don't think any of them, and it was Tokotomi and Sato, and anyway, none of them had been to the United States before, so I thought, okay, well, they're landing in Chicago. We're going to go see big buildings and eat a steak. Um, <laughs> so it was it was a little, it was even culturally strange for me, uh, but but um, we we rented a limo because there were like seven of us, I think, um, and then we just went sightseeing in, uh, in downtown Chicago, just looking at big buildings, going to, uh, just, just sightseeing. And then we ended up, uh, uh, having a steak, uh, at the end of the day. Of course, they were utterly exhausted. I didn't, I didn't plan this very well because they were terribly jet lagged. So as soon as, you know, we'd go do something, they'd get through it. They'd go back, we'd get back in the car, they'd fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and having been on the other end of that so many times of people like going, Oh, this, this person's coming to visit. I'm super excited. Sykes, we're going to do all this cool stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my God, you're going to ask me to get off of a, a 15 hour flight and, and be able to speak intelligently and enjoy things. Uh, that's crazy. So I didn't appreciate fully at the time what I was doing to them. Um, but we had this, this sort of great day, beautiful weather in Chicago that day. And this very strange, I think, for them, American cultural experience while they were super jet lagged. Um, and so that was, to- yeah, Tokotomi Sato, and and then I don't remember who the third person was. Um, 
and but all of his times in in coming to the U.S. Uh, were really interesting. He would he would bring Japanese candy and share them with with folks. Uh, and depending on the candy and depending on the recipients, were were be- some were better received than others. Um, he would m- he made all sorts of. Some of this is making up for the lack of the ability, you know, an easy ability to communicate. Um, so he, he would make a, an awful lot of little origami animals, especially cranes, of course, and give them to people. Because, like, when you can't talk to somebody, but you want to do something nice for them, you make them a little little paper bird, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, so a lot of his early experiences in the U.S. were sort of like that, just sort of trying to bridge bridge some of those uh, those, those divides. Um and then you and he had a, a pretty fun experience in 2016, 2015, 2016. <laughs> yeah. So we, so I knew he was coming because uh, you had told me. And I was, <laughs> I, I got, I got to say, I mean, and, so this episode is going to sound like two, like two guys talking about a friend. And that's exactly what I want it to. And I don't care. But here's the fun. Here's the story. Even better than that, it sounds like two old guys talking about a friend. Yeah, well, one old guy and one middle-aged guy. You figure <laughs> out who's who. I got more toys than you do. Um, so I am really nervous because I really didn't have any interaction with him prior, you know, in the in the years when he was at the Chicago Pipe Show in the in the early 2000s. I didn't have hardly any interaction with him, and then I'd fallen in love with his pipes in 2009 and it became yeah uh, it became a focus of of my pipe smoking so i'm thinking to myself you know self you're about to meet you know the person that that may uh, you know that makes a lot of the pipes that you that you really enjoy and you know what 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 happens if this goes bad (laughs) <laughs> you know what what happens if what happens if it's just uncomfortable and you know it's kind of like you know you, you get all amped up to meet your hero and then all of a sudden you meet him and it just goes badly well all that fell aside the minute i met him because uh i brought all the sato pipes that i owned at that point and i remembered him commenting through ryota to tell me that he was very happy to see uh, to see the pipes and he was very happy to see that they had all been smoked uh, because he didn't, you know, he, he, he wanted them to be, he wanted all of his pipes to be smoked. That was his thing. Um, he also commented that I had one pipe that was very, uh, that uh, was a shape that he'd only made like a couple of times. And it was a, it's a very squat saucer. And he was very excited to see that I had that. Um, we uh we recorded the interview which took some time and because of the positioning of the one traveling microphone and everything i was sitting on the floor in be- kind of in between him and riota and riota was doing the translating um right if i may interject sounds just like having lunch with him at his home yeah yeah so I, <laughs> we're all sort of clustered around and we're all sitting on the floor yeah yeah so and and i remember Perfect. I remember, yeah, I don't, I don't understand anything in Japanese. Yeah. The, the only Japanese I understand is, you know, Arigato and uh, Konichiwa and Godzilla. That's it. You know, that, that's my entire Japanese, but watching him speak and hearing his soft, uh, his soft speech and his pattern was so comfortable to listen to. And I, yeah, it was just a, it, it was a really comfortable environment to be with him. Uh, we took a lot of pictures and then the next night I did what I call the, probably the craziest thing I've ever done, which is to take five people that live in, in Tokyo. I took them selfishly to a sushi restaurant in St. Charles, Illinois. Which, if you look at a map, St. Charles, Illinois, is about as far away as you can get from an ocean, and still, you know, in in the North America. But here I go, 
And so the, the, the six of us hop into the van that I had rented. We drive down there and I told them that I wanted them to order what they would normally order. And in the order of the meal that they would normally eat it. And I wanted to eat exactly the way they did. I'm an American. These are six people from Tokyo. There are five people from Tokyo and one American. Um, we ordered and they had, you know, I think it was first it was the soup and then some edamame came out and then there was like maybe, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the sushi rolls, there might've been like enough for one or two slices of a roll per person. And then the, uh, and then the actual sushi came out and there was about enough for about six pieces each. Um, and um, and I'm watching how they do it and how you 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 take the wasabi and mix it into the uh, mix it into the soy sauce and you you dip the bottom of the sushi in so that it goes onto the onto the rice part and then you eat the sushi and they eat it in like two or three bites where I'm used to eating it in one bite. I'm watching this. The most fascinating thing was watching Sato himself eating edamame. Because uh, I'd never seen how to eat edamame the correct way, which is take the convex curve of it, push on the sides, and it shoots the beans into your mouth. And he did this like a machine. It was just pick it up, feel it, boom, shoot. Pick it up, feel it, boom. Uh, so that was fascinating. Um, I asked them how the meal was, and their comment was basically it was close to what they might get in Tokyo, but not quite. Um, but going back to your steakhouse trip, they all said, except for Ryota, who's very American for a Japanese guy. Cause he lived in Los Angeles for a while. And Ryota, if you're listening, go Dodgers. Um, uh, they all commented on how it was nice to just have a normal size meal and not have another big American meal or they felt like they had to eat everything on the plate and be stuffed and they enjoyed just the little meal and the conversations and this, that, and the other. <laughs> and I, I drove them back to the hotel and dropped them off at the front and I said, you know, I'll see you later in the smoking tent. And I drove out. And if you remember the, uh, at Pheasant Run, there was a Culver's hamburger place right across the street and it was open kind of late. Well, I, I drove over there, went through the drive-thru of Culver's and got a cheeseburger because I was still hungry. <laughs> Ate the cheeseburger in the van, drove back over to the smoking tent. I don't think I really saw them, but uh, a couple months later after that, in the mail came a package from Tokyo with some with a wallet for me and a little uh, and a little purse bag for my wife, and it's this Japanese handworked leather and some pictures and from that point on until about uh uh i think christmas of 2020 was the last time we had really corresponded either by card or you know either mailed cards or by email but uh that was my um uh, i i still laugh at it but what a great moment um you know just to get to spend time with uh, get to spend time with him and his wife and i believe they had a friend that he was training that was also doing silver work uh or was kind of son yeah he was doing uh some silver work but also some he was making tampers yeah he's a journalist by training ah. so i think sort of a hobby I, i'm not yeah mostly a hobby for him um uh, i'm i'm reaching over uh, as i'm getting the yes. tamper that he made and gifted to me yeah heavy heavy tamper yeah Oh, that's beautiful. In and silver. He also made some with uh, with lacquer work. He made some with... Um, uh, he used different materials. He made a few different different things. That was a really great trip with Sato. He also came to South Carolina that trip. And he visited Cornell and Deal and hung out with Jeremy Reeves. And um, uh, he and Shane spent a lot of time together. It was just... It was, it was a really... It was really special having him there for, for that trip that year. Because he made it a pretty big, he made it into a pretty big trip. Yeah. Uh, I guess the best way to describe Sato is, if you ever met him, extremely humble, extremely um, classically Japanese, 
which may which to some people may look as standoffish but it's just a very respectful uh he's just he was just a highly respectful person and you know obviously i think i i think he's one of the more talented pipe makers <laughs> um you know going forward uh you know i'll treasure the pipes that i have and um yeah, and I, and I think now after having this discussion with you and I know uh, this is not a plug, but um, Dave Peterson, my partner at the uh, Las Vegas International Pipe Show, uh, has been asking me to please bring out all the Satos for our Friday night part, our Friday night gathering in Vegas. And I will definitely uh, I think I'll uh, I think I'll bring the Satos now and uh, show off his show off the talent. Uh, any any final? That would be wonderful. Yeah. Any any final stories or thoughts from you? Uh, me- memories I, of your favorite Sato pipe? <laughs> well, I I have a handful, um, and they're they're all really nice and and special. I think so. So Sato represented. Sato was born during the war, and he represented, or he, he was an example of a. Uh, a, a sort of piece of, of Japanese culture that I don't want to say is, is dying or has died, but it's pretty rare at this point. Um, he was so dedicated to the simple mechanics of his craft. Um, and, you know, Americans were always splitting from one thing to another, mastering it in 15 minutes or thinking we have, um, and, and moving on to our next, our next passion but the sort of lifetime dedication to a craft that, that Sato demonstrated, uh, in his case, a pair of crafts, both the Urushi work and the pipe-making work, and then the, the putting of those together. Um, he was, it, it was so, and I, and I think this has been hard to explain in these stories because I, I, I don't have a good place to sort of hang it off of, but watching him handle his own work, watching him prepare his materials when he's showing me, when he showed me, or I watched him work, or he showed me how he did something. Um, the precision and competence is, or I mean, mastery is the right word. The precision and mastery with which he would do seemingly simple but very important things. This, this man was dedicated to a degree of perfection in what he did that most of us will never know. I certainly will never know. I do too many different things, and I do them pretty well. I will never master something the way he mastered, either pipe making or lack of work. And that's both extraordinary and special. And And I I will miss that. And I think he would miss him. I, I think he would also tell you that he didn't quite master anything and was still striving for the next. Oh, level. Of course. Yeah. Of course. If, if, if you were to ask him, and I'm sure, I, I, well, I did at various times ask him. If you were to ask him, he said, I'm still learning. He would, and, and you know, to the, to the American ear, you're like, you don't really know what you're doing then. But, but the way he said it was that this is a lifelong process. Yeah. And yes, I've been doing this for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, he would say he would never be as the master at this that his father was. Now, I, you know, I didn't know his father. His father, his father passed away in the uh, in the sixties. Um, but I find it difficult to believe that Sato was still trying to uh, match the work of his father all those years later. Um, but it's inherent in that constant striving for, for perfection that he demonstrated in everything he did. Well, well, we'll we'll finish this up by saying. Um, you know, for me, thank you to you Sykes for going to Japan and finding him or being, or being introduced to him and being brave enough to (laughs) being brave enough to to Dr. Shada, my friend, my friend in Japan and Barney Suzuki, my, my friend, he introduced me to in Japan for for putting all that together, putting Satsumi together. Well, you were the one that at that age was kind of crazy enough and ignorant enough to buy the pipes and bring them back and promote them. So thank you. Uh, and, uh, to, uh, and the Sato, you know, thank you for the hours, uh, you know, the, the thousands of hours of enjoyment of 
smoking his pipes, looking at him, holding him, and uh, for the wonderful memories. Thank you for having me on the show, Brian. Thanks for doing this together. And we'll be back in just a minute. Since its beginnings in 1876, Savinelli has become more than just a pipe factory. It's become a lifestyle. From sourcing the finest Mediterranean briar and partnering with local artisans to acquire unique accents, to expanding their catalog each year with new innovative series, Savinelli produces high quality Italian pipes that serve as a reflection of your individual tastes. With a portfolio that ranges from rugged designs fit for the outdoors to elegant pieces destined for black tie galas, Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. This is Internet Radio. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and uh, I didn't say this with uh, with Sykes, but in October, it, pre-pandemic, we were planning on going to Tokyo in October of 2020. And I don't do a lot of, uh, when I travel with my wife, I don't do a lot of pipe things, but one of the pipe things that I was going to make sure and do was to set up time to go and visit Sato. Uh, tentatively, we have a... Uh, trip planned that includes possibly japan for april of 2024 and uh, we were going to make sure and visit sato then but uh anyway that's not gonna work out uh for music uh this is just a song that i really like it's a it it's got some deep thought to it and it kind of fits the mood for this episode so uh, this is from the band sticks and it's a song called Show Me The Way. Every night I say a prayer In the hopes that there's a heaven But every day I'm more confused As the saints turn in all the heroes and legends I knew as a child have fallen to idols of play, and I feel this empty place inside. So I pray that I've lost my faith. Show me the way. Show me the way.
For you younger people that haven't dug around in some of the earlier albums of Styx, yeah, you know, the later albums, some of them went kind of popular pop music style, but go listen to some of the older stuff. There are some, there are some really well-written, well-done songs in there. You've got mail. All right, and now back to normal. Uh, comments or questions, you can email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, B-R-I-A-N at pipesmagazine.com, or post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on pipesmagazine.com, just like Dino does every week. And he said last regarding last week's show, nice report on the Smitty show. Uh, whenever two or more pipers gather, it's a party. Uh, Jeremy's discussion of small batch tobaccos was quite fascinating and of great interest. The Pipe Force story was, as Jeremy said, fun. <laughs> uh, Day Spring by Dan Locklear was lovely and very ethereal. I really enjoy Dan's music. His modern take on the classical form is both amazing and masterful. Pipes and music, yes. Thanks for another fun show, Dino. Dino, you're welcome. And uh, I had known about uh, Sato, so probably Dan's day spring hit perfectly at that point when I knew that as well. Uh, paging Casey ghost, Casey ghost to the comment section. Hope you're well, don't see anything from you this week. And then, uh, Andy SC 83 says, Hey Brian, great show with Jeremy. Really enjoyed hearing how the birds of a feather and pipe force came to fruition. Really enjoyed the music choice as well. As for South Carolina roads being crap. All I can say is I concur. Yeah, yep, they are um, $1,400 for a new windshield. But, you know, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, my Mini's got a brand new piece of glass in the front, and boy, does it look nice and clean. Um, all right, I got this email a while back from uh, Mrs. Spike, and uh, Mrs. Spike sent, you know, sent links to, uh, sent links with this, but I'm just going to read it. Uh, and it says, Brian, I'm not a pipe smoker, but I enjoy the warmth and fellowship of the community. However, when I listen to Malcolm Geith's YouTube, I long to become a pipe smoker. His poetry simply entices me to slow down, pick up my Missouri Meerschaum, a gift from Shannon, and in my imagination, light my pipe and puff away. Uh, I know that you like to offer a music selection, but I wondered if instead you might consider a poetry reading. In the YouTube, uh, Malcolm Geith reads smoke rings from my pipe at 9.35 to 11.20 and three-pipe lockdown poem uh, a little bit later on in the video. Both are lovely, but please don't feel compelled to offer them. If you don't consider it a good fit for your show, I defer to your judgment. Now, I'll interrupt the letter and say right here, uh, everybody should go to Malcolm's youtube channel it's malcolm guite g-u-i-t-e and listen to malcolm and watch him read them watching him and listening to him is just wonderful plus he's got a uh, he's just got a ton of wonderful uh, uh absolutely wonderful videos so i don't want to play them i wanted to, i ended up going back and watching some of them after reading this a while back and it just reminded me of how good he is so go do that i won't play them here Go to Malcolm's website. Uh, and then she says, lastly, uh, Thursday, as I was being rolled into the surgical suite for cataract surgery, I discovered one of the nurses has a husband who collected Meerschaum pipes. Uh, I return next month for the second eye, and I promise to bring her the announcement for the Richmond show next year. Those guys made me an honorary president a few years ago, but they probably don't remember. Anyway, I wear my core button proudly. Mrs. Spike, proud pipe ambassador who can see you better. <laughs> I'm really worried when she sees me if uh, now with better eyes. Yeah, she may not be so infatuated, but uh, thank you, Mrs. Spike, for being a wonderful pipe ambassador and uh, for recommending Malcolm's uh, poetry again. All right, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And uh, a regular rant full of piss and vinegar coming up next. Missouri Meerschaum Company has been continuously handcrafting authentic corncob pipes in the USA for over 150 years. They carry over 55 styles of cool smoking corncob pipes, colonial area clay pipes, and affordable hardwood pipes. From exciting new pipe and tobacco releases to accessories and more, Missouri Meerschaum Company is a must-see at www.corncobpipe.com. Missouri Meerschaum Company, authentically original, authentically you. 
Houston, we have a problem. Uh, we copy. State the nature of your emergency, please. Houston, we're out of pipe tobacco up here. Uh, we copy. Stand by. The flight director recommends visiting tinbids.com, the pipe collector's auction site. You copy? Roger, Houston. Stand by. We're looking into it. Okay, we're on tin bids now. They have vintage and hard-to-find tobaccos, pipes, and accessories. Is that correct? That's affirmative. That's tinbids.com. Okay, Houston, we've secured our tobacco. Now, how do we get it up here? Um, stand by. We're working on a solution. Visit tinbids.com, the pipe collector's auction site, and sign up for free today. We have liftoff. and vinegar and here's why all right uh, those of us that do uh, podcasts or do youtube or do instagram or social media stuff whatever it is those of us that do this will oftentimes get comments sometimes not nice comments from people and then some of those people will do it anonymously they will uh, post anonymously or they'll post and then they'll unsubscribe and then there's no way to respond to them. And sometimes, you know what, those comments are just not nice. So if you're going to have the, um, let's put it in Spanish, uh, if you're going to have the huevos to come out and try to blast somebody that's just doing a social media thing and not and not allow them to respond to you well then you know take your sorry self and go wander off into another neck of the woods all right that's it if you don't have if you don't want a response or don't want to have a way for the person to respond to you don't do it anonymously don't do it blindly just go away just just go away all right if you have a style comment or quality comment that's fine and you know, I, you know, I'll I'll just say this. I'll say this right now. Any negative comments that you have are fine with me. It's your opinion. You're welcome to it. I'm the leading expert on my opinion. You must be the leading expert on your own opinion. But allow me the ability to reach back out to you. Now, this hasn't happened to me recently. It did happen years ago, where somebody just blasted the show and blasted me and. There was no way to get back to them and respond or answer their questions or comment on it. None whatsoever. So if you just don't like what the social media people are doing and you don't want them to respond to you, well, then just go away. And by the way, this is not an airport. You don't have to announce your departure. Just leave. Just click off. Go watch another channel. Go watch another something. Unsubscribe. Do whatever. Okay. Got it. Good. Thank you. Uh, speaking of uh, YouTube and uh, podcasters. I was on the most recent episode of the Pipe and Tamper podcast featuring Jay Furman. Haha, <laughs> Mike. Uh, and you, and it's a great episode because he had pipe stories, and I think there was four or five people that were featured, and you can watch it on YouTube, and we actually showed the pipes. So, yeah, you can go do that. Uh, you can listen to it on podcast form. And, of course, you know, leave nice comments for uh, for Jay and Mike. All right. Uh, again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. You can follow me on Facebook and uh, Instagram. You can also follow the Vegas Pipe Show on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, a very big thank you to uh, Sykes for sitting down with me. That was, uh, that was not easy for the two of us to go through. Thank you all for listening to it. And bomba until next time. The clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to the
Satos mio son, arigato gozaimashita.